With all we've been through through these last few years, the world as we've known it is changing fast. The leader in the U.S. diplomatic corps reminds us that the script is changing on the stage of international relations as well. We're not going back to what was called the American century, so it's much more complex and it requires good diplomacy. Former Ambassador Eric Rubin explains why he's an advocate for his fellow Foreign Service workers. Admire the beauty of its collection as well as the setting itself when you visit the Louvre in Paris. What Voltaire called the greatest piece of architecture ever to proceed from the mind of man, and that isn't perhaps too great an exaggeration. And relive what it was like to see one of the world's greatest masterpieces for the first time. Mona Lisa, that knocked my socks off. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come with us. A while back, an art critic recommended to us, on your first ever visit to a major art collection, like the Louvre in Paris, that you just let yourself breeze through the halls to get a first glance at everything. He said, it's sort of like a whale who's filter feeding. James Gardner is back with us in a minute to recommend how to blitz your way through one of the world's largest art collections if you only have a few hours to spare. And the former U.S. ambassador to Bulgaria explains the value of foreign service work and why he now represents America's embassy workers as the head of their trade association. That's all coming up on today's 17th anniversary edition of Travel with Rick Steves. The Louvre in Paris is considered by many to be the world's greatest art museum. It's certainly the world's most famous museum. Art and architecture critic James Gardner has long loved the museum. In fact, his latest book is called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. While I imagine this will break his art-loving heart, he joins us today to debate with me the best three-hour look at that collection. James joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend the best Blitz tour of the Louvre. Hey, James, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you for having me. So you know the situation. You've got an attention span that could go for days and days, but a lot of people, they're just exhausted and they just want to see the Mona Lisa, but we want to salvage a meaningful experience in the Louvre being realistic about how much time and energy people have. We Americans have the shortest vacation in the rich world, and we're always going too fast. So let's pretend you're at the Louvre with a friend who's seeing it for the first time. And you know he's only good for a couple of hours. Uh, what would your plan be? Okay, well, first of all, I should say that I have about 45 minutes to an hour of best vision, after which it starts to flag. So you should keep hmm. that in mind because I assume that's the case with other people as well. One of the antidotes to that is to divide your inspection among different nationalities, different ages. So you might spend, say, 45 minutes looking at the Italian art. Then you go to something entirely different, like the Islamic art. So, so you keep varying it. And mm. then when you come back to, say, a part of the Italian collection that you hadn't seen before, you'll be seeing with fresh eyes. And, you know, two things to keep in mind, coffee and you can always come back on another tour. I mean, it's a blessing not to be done with the Louvre because we're going to be going back to Paris for the rest of our lives, you know. So leave sure. entire sections that can be enjoyed. You could think of it as a collection of museums. And there's some beautiful coffee shops. Just have a cup of coffee, give yourself half an hour to relax, and then you can recharge and, and plunge back in. And another thing is that the way they structure the tickets is good for the whole day. So you could go in the morning 
then leave for a few hours, uh, sit by the Seine, then come back. And I would imagine when you have a, a ticket, you don't need to worry about standing in that line again. You can just go to the, to the part of the line where the people who have special passes go, and they will look at your ticket and let you in. So that's a great tip. Okay, now, so buckle up. I'm going to take you through what I would do. And I'm kind of a, I'm a tour guide. I've been taking people through the loop for 20 years, and I just love it. And it's, um, here, here's what we would do. We'd start in the Greek section with the Venus de Milo, the, just the epitome of golden age beauty. We would kind of uh, feeder, what do you call it when you just filter like feed. a filter, filter feed. feed? You'd filter your feed your way through the gallery of Greek statues. Uh, you'd stop for sure at the Parthenon freezes, um, and then you'd filter feed your way through the Roman collection and just look at the faces of the portrait busts. Then you'd turn the corner and you got this amazing staircase leading up to the victory of Samothrace, the the Hellenistic iconic piece of art at the top of the stairs. You pop into the Apollo gallery around the corner where you really take a moment to appreciate the Louvre as a palace because it's a palatial room. And there you've got the crown jewels of, of the old kings before the revolution. And then you've got your sort of march through painting history, starting with the medieval world and Giotto, the Grand Gallery with the Italian Renaissance, which actually has Leonardo's and Raphael's there with all the others in that quarter-mile-long gallery. And then we hit that mosh pit in front of Leonardo's Mona Lisa, taking a moment to appreciate the other great paintings in that same room. And we finish it off with next door, visiting the neoclassical room where you see the biggest canvas in the museum, the coronation of Napoleon, and then across the way, the romantic French painting with the liberty leading the people and the raft of the Medusa and the great art of the 1800s. And downstairs, you check out Michelangelo's uh, two statues of the slaves, and then you collapse out in the park and you celebrate that you've seen (laughs) the best of the Louvre. Um, I know that's a lot, but... Does that make sense to you, or or how would you structure this greatest hits kind of look at the Louvre? Well, everything you said makes sense, though I would say this, that you have at that point seen one half of the Louvre. There's the whole whole other half, right? Uh, You've seen the southern part of the Louvre, which is mighty impressive, and that's where tourists usually want to go. Uh, But there's so much to see on the other side. For example, all the Dutch and Flemish paintings. You have this whole room of 23 canvases by Rubens, uh, these extraordinary, massive technicolor marvels. Then you've you've got these great period rooms, the rooms of Napoleon III, Um, even though he didn't actually live there. But these are spectacular rooms. These are monuments of over-the-top opulence. And you just have to see that when you go to the Louvre. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Gardner, and he's written the definitive book about the Louvre, its origins and its role as a site that's played a, a big part of French history. It's called the Louvre, the many lives of the world's most famous museum. We have links to James's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. James, you're talking about the many lives, and of course that's referring, I think, to the long history and the fact that it is much more than a great gallery. Um, talk a little bit about appreciating the architecture of the building. Yes. So the Louvre, in addition to being a great museum, it was this nursery for architectural experiment over 800 years. The one thing that is as spectacular a masterpiece as the Mona Lisa or the Venus de Milo, 
but that no one or, or one in a hundred or one in a thousand visitors will ever get to see is what's known as the colonnade, which uh, is all the way at the eastern end of the Louvre. It was once the grand entrance to the palace. Everyone nowadays enters the Louvre through the pyramid, and they leave more or less through the same means. And so they never get to see what Voltaire called the greatest piece of architecture ever to proceed from the mind of man. And that isn't perhaps too great an exaggeration. Hey, you know, James, here's a tip for you. One of my favorite suggestions in my Paris guidebook is to get an Uber. And at night, while the lights are still on, Paris is the city of light, and they do such a great job of floodlighting, uh, get your Uber driver to drive you around the entire building and enjoy the architecture from every angle, including that colonnade and the front door of the old palace, and continue your circular tour enjoying all the wings and all the fancy, proud, egomaniacal insignatures of the various royals that have built this and that wing, and just get an appreciation for the architecture and the immensity of the place. I think that's good advice. Another tip is when you're in the museum, I find myself getting a breath of fresh air by not going outside, but just parking myself on a chair near a window or sitting and, and enjoying looking out the window, and you see different angles kind of looking down at great art and, I mean, great architecture in the courtyards that are hiding out. And there's a lot of good views from the windows that you can enjoy. That's right. You can look out on the Seine. You can look out on the Cour Napoléon. And uh, you know, it's, it's a very photogenic museum. So virtually anything you look out on will repay the inspection. James Gardner is a respected art and architecture critic from New York. He's written The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. You can listen to his previous visit with us on Travel with Rick Steves and find links to his work at ricksteves.com slash radio. Now, one thing we have to remember when we are planning our trip is it is closed on Tuesday. I think that's something that's a pitfall for a lot of sightseers, both the both foreign and, and French, when you travel in France, the, the fact that things are closed on Tuesday. That's true. And, and what's sad is that all of them tend to be closed on, with some exceptions, but they tend to be closed on Tuesday. So it's not as though you can go somewhere else to some other museum while you're not going to the Louvre. Well, the uh, rare the, museum that is open on Tuesday is going to be yes, crowded. It's is. going to be really crowded on Tuesday because people are frustrated exactly. at the Louvre and let's go to the Orsay. But I'll tell you, as a TV producer, um, we I think we spend $400 an hour to go into the Louvre with our TV crew on the day it's closed. And we get to set up uh -huh. in front of all the great art and so on. And on the closed day, they're very, very busy because they're rehanging paintings and they're cleaning up and there's crews in there and there's important VIP guests and so on. It's a fascinating world on Tuesday when the public is not able to go in. That, that, that sounds like a good idea. As a matter of fact, uh, you might want, to, I don't know if one can actually do this, but you might want to pay $400 just to, if you can afford it, <laughs> you can afford just it. Well, to have the whole place to yourself. I would imagine there's a few big shots that do that just for that luxury. Um, also, a new sort of dimension of the Louvre is uh, online. And I, I know you're impressed by the new website. Uh, how's that? Well, uh, something like 35,000 works of art are on view in the building, but that's about one-twelfth of how much they actually possess, which is like close to 500,000 objects. And all of those are now, you can access them through the website of the Louvre, which has been 
updated and vastly improved. Well, that's so worth, that's worth a- being worth being mindful of, especially considering the immensity of the collection. Hey, Joan has sent us an email from Portland, and she writes, There's absolutely nothing on earth like being inside the Louvre, walking its eternal halls. As a painter, I could happily wander its halls for days, studying, sketching, and marveling. It's a living classroom. When you enter, you're stepping into a state of being in deep time, firmly in the present, pulling the past into context and recognizing the threads that have bound all of human experience since time immemorial. A stroll through the Tuileries feels almost psychedelic. The Louvre is Paris's beating heart. Whoa, there's an art lover that really appreciates the Louvre. I'd say so. James Gardner, author of The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. So many of us just love the Louvre, and it's been a delight to be able to talk to a man who really understands the the importance of the Louvre and and can give us a, a broader context and ability to really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Nearly half a million works in the Louvre's collection are now available to view up close online. We have a link with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll remember what it was like to explore Europe on my own for the first time. But first, we look at the vital work of diplomats in our volatile world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Yaran from Istanbul. I'm a tour guide and I have a six-year-old son And this is a very nice lullaby I used to sing to him when he was a baby. It is like this. Atam tutam ben seni, şekere banam ben seni, akşama baban gelende oy önüne atam ben seni. (laughs) It goes like this. I will adorn you and I will dip you into sugar. And then in the evening when your father comes, I will just throw you to him so that he can enjoy you. (laughs) Atam tutam ben seni, şekere banam ben seni, akşama baban gelende oy önüne atam ben seni. A few years ago, while filming in Bulgaria, my crew and I were invited to the U.S. Embassy in Sofia. My evening there with Ambassador Eric Rubin and his staff reminded me of the talent and passion and importance of the dedicated people who make up our foreign service. I left there that evening inspired with my head just spinning from what I'd learned by talking with Ambassador Rubin and his staff and feeling like I had a true friend in our ambassador there. I also left thinking, it's just not fair that I got to enjoy this fascinating evening and not share the conversation. I thought, I've got to have Ambassador Rubin on my radio show. And now we're doing just that. Ambassador Eric Rubin, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Rick. Ambassador Rubin, can I call you Eric? Absolutely. Great. So now you've served in posts all around the world since you graduated from Yale in 1985. Now you're back in Washington, D.C. To kick off our conversation, can you just give me a blitz review of the places where you've worked in the last 35 years or so as a diplomat and what your role is now as president of the American Foreign Service Association? Certainly. So in my career, which started in 1985, I've served in Honduras, Thailand, Russia, in Ukraine, and in Bulgaria. I've spent a lot of time working in Washington as well at the State Department. And uh, right now I'm the elected president of the American Foreign Service Association, which is both our union and professional association of the American Foreign Service. So there's 270 or so embassies, consulates, and missions around the world. That's a lot of people. Is that kind of what constitutes the American Foreign Service? 
It does. Um, it's not just the State Department. We have six federal agencies and departments. Uh, a lot of people know the U.S. Agency for International Development, which is our second biggest. But we also have commercial officers, agricultural officers, and even the animal and, and plant health inspectors overseas are our members, as well as Voice of America correspondents and technicians. Whoa. So that's quite a family. And you're the president of the organization that is, for lack of a better word, uh, serves as like the union to make sure all of these hardworking people are treated properly. Correct. And to promote the Foreign Service to our fellow Americans, to the Congress, to help them understand what we do, why it matters, and why we hope we'll have their support. Yeah. On your website, I read that uh, members of the Foreign Service famously are reticent about tooting their own horns. Okay, Eric, this is your chance. Can you toot that horn a little bit? Because I was just so inspired by the work you do. What, what are you proud of? What do you guys accomplish? Well, I think there's a lot I, I personally am proud of. It's not always an easy career uh, like anything else. There are tough times. There are things that aren't very appealing or, or easy at times. But I think I'm proud that I think I've made a difference in helping individual Americans. One of the things we do is help Americans overseas who, who need our help, whether they're in an accident or under arrest or just about any other situation. We play that role first and foremost. It's the most important thing we do. And we do that for Americans living overseas as well as Americans who are traveling for tourism or business or anything else. But I'm also proud that I helped to take part in some really important moments in our history, in the world's history, including the end of the Cold War, of Soviet communism, and the efforts to build a better uh, world after that. Uh, right now, as you can see, as everyone can see, some of those hopes are, are not being fulfilled right now. But uh, still, I think ending the, the nuclear standoff between the U.S. and the Soviet Union is something that I, I was very proud to play a part in. Now, Eric, of course, um, I, I want to focus on the value from a diplomacy point of view and, and, and helping manage the complicated things in our world affairs so we don't have needless wars. But you opened up by saying it was a traveler's service also. And I, I suppose travelers can misunderstand that and come to you if they uh, have some silly little problem that really is not your concern. How do travelers misunderstand and how should they understand what their consulate or their embassy can provide them when they're overseas away from home. I think the most important thing we can do for travelers is we recommend that people register with the State Department. The program is called STEP, and it's the Secure uh, Traveler Enrollment Program. And that information is held very securely, private. It's not shared with anyone. But if you give permission and let's say you're traveling anywhere in the world and your family needs to contact you, there's an emergency back home, uh, mm -hmm. we can try to reach you. But also, we can try to help when, when you have a real problem, whether it's you're under arrest, which sadly does happen, whether you're in a car accident or a bike accident or fall crossing the street or whatever. Um, we can't pay for all your expenses, but we can help with a loan if you need it. And we can help you find people, whether it's doctors or lawyers uh, that you might need. And we can give you advice. Now, sometimes people come and say, can I receive mail at the embassy? That doesn't happen as often as it used to. But mm -hmm. um, the answer is no. Uh, and some people would say, can you just give me a loan? I'm out of money and I'm supposed to go you know, on a bike ride tomorrow and I don't have any cash. And, and the answer to that is no. <laughs> but uh, when people really need help, we're there. And if you need to get home, we can lend you the money to get home, but you have to pay it back. <laughs> very, very good to make that, that clear. 
the Honorable Eric Rubens, our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. I first met Eric when he was the U.S. Ambassador to Bulgaria. He's now the president of the American Foreign Service Association, representing the interests of American embassy staff around the world. Eric shares ideas for improving the work of U.S. diplomacy in his columns in the Foreign Service Journal and on his organization's website, AFSA.org. You know, uh, I want to talk about uh, the challenges uh, you have in sorting out the problems of the world before people have to go to war, and that's kind of what diplomacy is all about. And I'm always curious about how, how you can share your honest political opinions, because so much is political these days. As an ambassador, what are the guidelines? And now as president of AFSA, the uh, American Foreign Service Association, what are your guidelines about that? How, how comfortably can you talk about politics? You know, it's a very important question. As an ambassador or as a representative of our country and really as, as a, a public servant for any federal agency, we can't talk publicly about politics. We can't take positions on political issues that might affect uh, the U.S. government. Uh, we can talk privately. We can talk among family and friends. We can talk among colleagues if it's appropriate and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And like in any workplace, you have to figure that out and, and try to get that right. But if you can't avoid speaking publicly about the administration that's in office or policies that the U.S. government is taking, you're in the wrong profession because really uh, we have elections and hopefully they lead to the, the people in power being elected by the people. And then the question is, who sets the policy? And that has to be the elected officials. Mm-hmm. And the public servants have to carry it out. You can't have all two million federal employees saying, you know, I, d- I don't agree with that policy, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do it my way. Um, and that goes from your your mail carrier to your air traffic controller to your foreign service officer overseas to right. our military. Uh, now, in my current role, I'm able to speak publicly about a lot of things. One of them is uh, our foreign service supporting, defending the members of our foreign service. We have 17,000 members in our association. Uh, And I can say whatever I want about that. I still stay away from controversial policy issues or or politics because I represent everybody in our profession and people have different viewpoints and I've got to represent them all. I suppose something fundamental is you believe in diplomacy. You believe in engagement. And that's not a left-right thing necessarily. But some political powers don't believe in diplomacy, and others are more enthusiastic about it. Uh, you know, I mean, imagine appointing an ambassador to the United Nations who doesn't even believe in the United Nations. That's something that I would think a diplomat would be um, disappointed in. Well, I, I think, you know, those of us who choose this profession uh, and who get chosen for it uh, feel pretty passionate about it because fundamentally diplomacy is the only real alternative to war and destruction and death and suffering. I mean, it, that's putting it very that's pretty simplistically, <laughs> that's but pretty, it's, pretty vivid. it's a fact. Yeah. And so, you know, in terms of, of making sure that we have the resources and the people to do it, a former defense secretary once said, if you don't give enough money for diplomacy, you're going to have to give me more weapons and ammunition. Mm. And that's simplistic, but it's basically true. I want to talk about that in just a minute. But first, before we leave this, uh, the appropriateness of political, I would imagine President Biden has frustrated you in some ways, and I imagine President Trump also did. Share with us just uh, a frustration you've got with our current president and a frustration you had with, uh, with President Trump. Well, I think um, a common frustration that we always have is a lack of appreciation of the nonpartisan, apolitical nature of our 
foreign service of our colleagues, as is true with other federal employees. We do not endorse candidates. We don't get into that. And and really, I know people who've served eight presidents, and they serve them equally well and equally committedly and don't get into the politics. I think the frustration we've had recently with this administration is the slow pace of nominating ambassadors and other officials. We still have about 30 ambassadorial posts that don't have a nominee. Mm. There's no good reason for that uh, year in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think with the Trump administration, there was an effort to freeze out uh, the Foreign Service. Uh, We had almost no senior Foreign Service people in positions of responsibility in Washington. And I think there was some concern that the the profession was not respected and empowered the way it should be. And I think that has improved. But you know, there's always something. And, you know, our job is to keep pushing for improvements and for support for diplomacy. There's that sort of um, mantra that we've had for for generations, I think, is that uh, foreign, um, no, what is it, politics uh, stops at the at the border or, or stops at the ocean? The water's edge. The water's yes. edge. And is that a realistic um, aspiration? Um, I'm afraid it, it never was quite true. And now it's it's not. I mean, there are still some issues that are bipartisan and everybody can agree on. And we've had some successes. The efforts our country took to to fight HIV AIDS overseas um, mm. was truly a bipartisan effort that started under uh, President George W. Bush. Huge success. We probably saved well more than a million lives. And that was us. That wasn't the whole world. Um, we can be proud of that. It was bipartisan. Uh, And there have been some other things, but these days, like everything else, it's very polarized. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ambassador Eric Rubin. He graduated from Yale in 1985 and has been in the Foreign Service ever since. In Honduras, Moscow during the years the USSR collapsed, Ukraine, Thailand, and more. He was the ambassador to Bulgaria from 2016 to 2019, and he's currently the president of the American Foreign Service Association. Eric joins us today from Washington, D.C. So, Eric, we were talking about how some great military leader said, if you're not going to spend money uh, in foreign service, I'll need more money in uh, the military budget. So there's a rationale for investing in diplomacy. Talk a little bit about how that's a good investment. And one way would might be looking at what you accomplished in Bulgaria with your uh, staff in the three years you were ambassador there. Um, it's paid for by American tax dollars. Absolutely. So I think in terms of avoiding conflicts, conflicts are always more costly, not just potentially in terms of lives, but literally in terms of of dollars and cents. And even a a conflict that doesn't have any any casualties is enormously expensive. And anytime we can avoid having to take military action, put our people at risk, both in the military and and our civilian colleagues, uh, that's the right answer. But also, Military action doesn't necessarily solve a problem. It just postpones it in some cases. Hmm. And you need sometimes to sit down and negotiate. And you need people who know how to do that, um, who've trained and, and had the experience. And that's really what, what we do. In addition, uh, as you mentioned, in Bulgaria, there are all different kinds of diplomacy. It's not just conflict avoidance, but we do agricultural diplomacy. We do commercial diplomacy where we advance the cause of American exports, which creates money and jobs for Americans. Same thing on the agricultural side, promoting the export of American agricultural products. Um, And it's not just grain, for example, that people think of. But when I was in Bulgaria, we had a big program to import beef from Nebraska that met EU 
non-GMO certification standards, and they created an entire market for American beef hmm. because it's some of the best beef in the world. And um, that's an example. But we also work on on health issues. HIV AIDS was a big one, as I mentioned. Uh, COVID is now. And all sorts of other things, cultural diplomacy, advancing exchanges and uh, mutual understanding and just excellence in, in the arts and music mm. and other forms of culture. That's diplomacy of, of a different kind. I felt that. You know, when I was with you and your staff at dinner that night a couple of years ago in Sofia, I, I felt that. I was surrounded by Bulgarian culture, and, and you guys were were cheerleaders for Bulgarian culture. And behind this, and and at the same time, you were working on all these nuts and bolts, practical economic issues. You also, I I was uh, remember concerned that a hundred percent of Bulgaria's um, gas and energy resources was coming from Russia. And uh, was it the determination was that it would be healthier for Bulgaria to diversify? Yes, and that was what the Bulgarians wanted. It's also what uh, the European Union policy was that they needed to try to follow. And we thought. You know, no country should be dependent mm -hmm. solely on one other country for almost all its energy needs. That creates dependence uh, and it, it creates risk. And a lot of progress has been made on that front. And I was was very proud to be part of that. That's really, I think, something that we should run up the flagpole so American citizens, voters, taxpayers can, can recognize that and take that into consideration. Um, how is the Foreign Service actually funded? Is it part of the defense budget? And do you think it's adequately funded? Uh, no, we have our own budget. Uh, during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, there was some money uh, for foreign service positions that came out of the defense budget because it was related to the military actions in both those countries. But in general, we have our own State Department appropriation. It's small uh, beer compared to the defense budget. Um, it also includes things like uh, the passport office. And I think I'm right in saying the, the total annual budget is about $60 billion a year. Now, our defense budget, if I understand, is $800 billion a year. And the rationale of defense is to make us safe and to make our world stable. You can invest in hard power, and that's kind of what we do with that $800 billion. You could invest in soft power. That would be diplomacy and development aid. And you could reassess the mix. It seems like the, the determining factor would be what do you think will make us safer and the world more stable? Don't you feel like there's a huge pot of money there that, that you could reassess every once in a while and uh, reconsider the practical value along with the ethical value, but the practical value of soft power? Yes. I mean, that's one of our strongest arguments. And soft power also means uh, having confidence in what we have to share with the world. And I think we have a lot to share with the world. We We also have aspects of our society that frankly, need need a lot of work and a lot of improvement. But uh, soft power can draw on all the things that are so uh, remarkable, attractive, admirable about our country. Mm -hmm. And you have to work at it. You can't just say we're the, the only superpower. We're number one. You know, when we say we want you to do something, you just do it because you need us. Um, that kind of approach, if it ever worked, is, is not going to work in the modern world. And we've got to actually make an effort to, to make the case for why uh, what we have to offer is valuable. You know, when we think about that stability and the brand of America and so on, I can just see why uh, a diplomat would, would just understand that you've got to have continuity, you've got to have consistency, you've got to have a savvy staff. Uh, you, you need to have um, keep the politics out of it and just be pragmatic. Absolutely. 
Eric Rubin, the president of the American Foreign Service Association, is sharing thoughts on the role of American diplomacy in these challenging times. Eric joined the Foreign Service after graduating from Yale in 1985. He served overseas assignments in Honduras, Ukraine, Thailand, and in Moscow, and he was a security affairs officer for the U.S. government on Central and Eastern Europe at the time the Soviet Union ended. I was just thinking as we've been discussing, and, and I'm so inspired by the value of, of our diplomatic corps, have you, in your 35 years of, of work as a diplomat, have you ever thought much about the role of the medieval jester? You know, I'm, I'm just fascinated how in the Middle Ages they didn't have a diplomatic corps, but the king paid the jester to be annoying, to go out from the castle, to go into the barrios and learn what was going on in the gutters and, and with the people who were different than the people inside the, the walls of the castle. And then the jester would come back and tell the king the truth. I remember back in the 1980s uh, being upset with foreign service staff that, that seemed to be doing just the opposite. Uh, you know, they'd go all the way to Nicaragua and they'd have dinner on top of the big hotel in Managua, it was the Intercontinental Hotel. And they made policy by talking with local elites and never getting out into the barrios. They ended up telling the king not what he needed to know, but what he wanted to know. Does that relate to your challenge as a diplomat? And, and did you ever get that medieval jester's angle? Uh, very much so. So I think for us to do our job the way it needs to be done to really add value, we have to get out of the castle, as you put it. When I was in Bulgaria, I, I tried to get to every province and every corner of the country and not just meet with officials and business people, but with people from all walks of life. And, and frequently, those are the people who are very excited to have a chance to talk to American diplomats. Uh, but then also, it's critical for people to be able to tell the truth. And, and this is where we get in trouble if people are afraid to, to say what they know to be true and only say what they think their bosses want to hear. Um, that's how not just they get in trouble, but our, our whole country and the world can get in trouble. I would think a lot of our, our supposed enemies, you know, the Taliban or the people advising the leadership in Iran and so on, they might be inclined to tell their leaders what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear or they might get the ax. Absolutely. But, you know, obviously people aren't afraid literally of getting the ax in, in our country, but there are people who, who you know, are afraid to speak up yeah. and to say the emperor has no clothes and that that's not good. We can learn from history in that regard. I mean, how did McCarthyism and the Red Scare impact our ability to navigate the choppy waters around the Vietnam War uh, smartly? Well, I think that is probably the most tragic and, and in many ways the saddest story of the modern history of, of American diplomacy. Uh, we had all of our Asia experts who had served in China and other countries in the Far East. And during World War II, uh, they cooperated with both the nationalist forces under Chiang Kai-shek and with the communists to defeat the Japanese. And afterward, uh, the Chinese communists won the civil war, and a lot of our diplomats had been writing predictions saying they're going to win because they're determined and they're organized. And yes, they have support from the Soviet Union, but the nationalists are corrupt and disorganized and don't have morale, and they're going to lose. And that is what happened, despite a lot of U.S. military aid and economic aid. When that happened, Senator McCarthy and other what I would call red baiters said those people in the Foreign Service who predicted the communists would win were communist sympathizers, and they were trying to have the communists win, and uh, they're disloyal, and they need to be fired. And a lot of people were, including most of our good Asia experts who spoke the languages, who had lived there, in some cases 
had lifelong experience. And then when we got into trouble first in the Korean War and then most importantly in Southeast Asia with the Vietnam War and the wars in Cambodia and Laos, uh, all of our most experienced senior talent was gone for the most part with a few exceptions because they'd been chased out Hmm. because they had reported what they believed to be the truth and that was not a popular uh, thing. That is tragic. And when you think about this political purging, we can learn from this history, can't we? We can. And, and, you know, during the McCarthy period, we had teams of people and, and they included the uh, famous or infamous Roy Cohn, who went around the world going to American embassy libraries and looking for so-called subversive books. And they didn't burn them. They just took them off the shelves. But they had a list of about 20,000 books that they were banning. And that was terrible. And some of the stuff they banned were, were great American classics. These were not, you know, certainly not communist literature or Karl Marx or anything like that. But, you know, that partly led to some protections for our people so that even in, in more difficult times recently, uh, people have had much more protections than they did back in the in the 50s. But still, the risk of politicization is very high. It's why we have to have a professional career foreign service, professional career civil service because we, we can't have every administration firing everybody. That's what happened in the 19th century. I, I would just hope and pray for continuity in our service from from the, the, the caliber of the people I met at your dinner table who were rank-and-file staffers that really understood Slavic issues in the Balkans and so on in Bulgaria. Man, that's a treasure for our country to have people on the ground in these countries that speak the language and have an affinity for that culture. We've been talking about the value of diplomacy And I think something that is new in our generation is just the power of China. What a formidable military, what a formidable economy. Is that a a major concern of our diplomatic corps? Well, I think it's a major focus. You know, for most of my adult life and for most of the past 75 years, really, we were number one. Uh, We were competing with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Then the Cold War ended. We thought we were the only superpower and no one could compete with us. And it's not so easy right now. And the rise of China is real. I I don't think it should be exaggerated. I don't think it should cause panic or uh, any kind of new Cold War. But the fact is China is rising. It's growing in power and strength and confidence. And in some cases, it's outpacing us in diplomatic representation overseas. China now has more embassies, now has more diplomats, now has more foreign aid workers than we do because they're paying for them. And um, that's something that we have to think about. Hmm. And then the other thing is the Chinese are putting their money where their mouth is. We stopped paying for things like water projects and roads and bridges and things like that a long time ago for poorer countries. And the Chinese are still doing it. And obviously, mm-hmm. that can come with strings attached. It's it's not always a, a simple proposition, but you know it has a big sign on it saying, gift of the people of China. And that has a lot of power. I was just in Ethiopia. And uh, you know every, every project had um, big machinery, and it all said China on it. It's a lot of money. And uh, China... China is not that altruistic. I think there's a lot of real politic going on there, and we might wake up uh, in a decade realizing, boy, we were asleep at the wheel. Absolutely. And if you'd been in Ethiopia 40 years ago, all of those containers and, and bridges and roads would have had a sign on them saying, gift to the people of the United States. And when the Cold War finished, so did our idealism. To some extent, yes. We thought we could coast. We thought it would just fall in our lap. Eric, we're just, I could talk forever uh, with you about this, but we should remind people that We can go to AFSA.org 
to learn more about the American Foreign Service Association. Is that a good way to learn more about what you do? That's a great way. And you can also uh, find a link there to the Foreign Service Journal, which is our monthly magazine, uh, which we think is one of the best journals of opinion and debate on policy and also tells a lot about what we do in the Foreign Service. It's a great read. So I hope you'll take a look. Eric Rubin, thank you so much for joining us. If you were to sum up your feeling as as a person who, for ever since you got out of college, has been dedicating your life to diplomacy, what's your state of mind? Are are you hopeful? Are you demoralized? Uh, Where are we right now? Can you give us a a one-minute state-of-the-world summary from a career diplomat? Sure. Well, you know, first and foremost, I insist on staying hopeful and positive just because I think we need to if we're going to fix what's broken and make a difference in the world. But realistically, it's a very, very difficult time. We never really ended the Cold War. We did officially, but we never really figured out what we wanted to replace the Cold War division of the world. And I think we still need to think about what role our country should play in the world, how much we're willing to pay for that uh, in terms of not just money, but people and resources and time. And what we want to share as Americans with the rest of the world, what are our priorities are, what our values are. We have to have uh, values in our foreign policy, I think, very importantly, but we have to be realistic. We're no longer the only game in town. Uh, we're not going back to what was called the American century. So it's much more complex and it requires good diplomacy and some planning and thinking, which I think is a country we need to start doing. Thank you so much for your service, Ambassador Rubin, and best wishes. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Because I travel so much of the year, I find it really comforting to come home to the town I was raised in. After all these years of globetrotting, I still live right where I grew up, in Edmonds, Washington. It's the place that was sort of the springboard for my 40 years of European travel. Joining me now for a look back on how our travels turned into a career is my original travel buddy from high school, Gene Openshaw. Right now, let's look back on how we started out vagabonding our way across Europe on a shoestring right out of high school. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back to the year 1973. Richard Nixon was facing Watergate. The world was facing an oil crisis. And two teenage boys from the suburbs of Seattle were heading off to Europe on their first trip, the first time overseas away from their parents, the first taste of high culture. That was more than 40 years ago, and that was me and Gene Openshaw, our first trip to Europe on our own. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw now. He's my travel partner back in 73, and he's been working with me for the last 40 years. Boy, it makes me feel a little bit old, but uh, we're still young at heart. <laughs> and Gene's the co-author of several of my guidebooks. Gene, how did a couple of kids like us, with no cultural background, grow up to be talking about art and history now on the radio? Well, let me take you back to our first trip. I brought something here. Oh. I'm hoping to kind of spark some memories that of what one travel day's was like right back there. then. Yeah. <laughs> few coins from the pre-Euro days. Here, look. Okay, we're talking 73. So back then, we had a Deutschmark, we had a Frank, a a Greek drachma. Here's a lira. And a Norwegian, a a Danish crown with a hole in it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very different world. Europe back then was quite different than travel today. You just think about some of the most basic things that we take for granted, like phone calls. If you wanted to make a phone call, you had to gather a bunch of coins like this. Pop them in. You'd get a whole, all the coins you could gather, pop them in, and you'd get to talk one minute to your girlfriend <laughs> or your mom and dad. Yeah. The world wasn't globalized. Very few people spoke English. And I really had the sense, I don't know about you, that 
we were kind of on our own out there, sort of and, the dark and, side of the moon. And it was the Cold War, and that was scary. I remember standing in Berlin next to that wall, and it was scary. Crossing borders, just remember, you know, angry dogs and strange people coming at 2 o'clock in the morning to take your passports. And you did not question them. No, no. Yeah, Europe was kind of, uh, yeah, you felt like it was sort of a a battlefield, a battleground between these two nuclear superpowers. But way back then, I still think there was the seeds of globalization. It was like we were on the edge of a new world. You know, remember this? We're on the Rhine River. We're at that castle in, was it Bacharach? Where you're up on that hill. Yeah. And Beautiful summer over. night. We're out there and we're surrounded. It's us. We're a couple of teenagers and we're surrounded by a bunch of other teenagers and their hormones. And we're looking out over the Rhine River. And I did get a sense of globalization because we all had some things in common. We all had gotten your rail passes. We all had $3 a night for a bunk at the youth hostel there. Yeah, <laughs> yep. We're all fascinated by medieval castles and, and the river cruise uh, up and down the Rhine River. And fascinated by pop culture. That was about the only thing we had in common. That's true. You know, the Beatles, uh, she loves you, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Ah, das ist, das ist gut. Right. You know? Or talking about Hollywood movies. Coca-Cola, everybody wanted a Coke. Everybody wanted a Coke. Right. That's where I thought we really connected with the Europe that was coming of age and would become the globalized world. Well, this was, yeah, this was a time when people were traveling and connecting. And we were first world travelers, so we, we hung out with other first world travelers. When we did go to Bulgaria, we'd hang out with people from Cuba and Angola and Russia because that was a, a parallel world. But there in Germany on the Rhine, it was people from Australia, from France, from Canada, from the United States. We learned a lot about culture, even though I remember just going to the museums because my mom said it would be a crime not to. But stepping into those museums, we did gain an appreciation of high culture. Mona Lisa, that knocked my socks off. Stepping into St. Mark's Square in Venice. Oh, oh man. Stepping into the greatest cathedral in Europe, St. Peter's Basilica. Oh, man. Yeah, the, the Baroque, the gold leaf, the, the statues. You know, it we was, didn't become... Wow. We didn't probe too deeply in it, but we did have a respect for what people did centuries ago for, for their state, for their religion, for their community. There was a lot of passion and a lot of, a lot of uh, energy put into civilization back then. And when we came back, we weren't art scholars by any means, nor are we now. But we do at least have a knowledge and understanding of what's out there. But what I think, you know, we learned a lot from the museums and the art. But what really taught me the most I think it was just the fact that Europe was so different then. It was kind of jarring when we went there. It kind of opened our eyes. You know, we're in Amsterdam, and, and you're seeing these hippies and freaks and smoking pot and the girls on Z. Dyke Street and the sex trade. And, and for a couple of teenage boys, that was kind of a... You're kind of trying to figure it all out. We were like two little Reese's monkeys huddling together and <laughs> hugging each other, trying not to, not, not to get into too much trouble. See no evil, hear no evil. <laughs> but when us. we flew home, <laughs> yeah. the world was our playground. Yeah. Think about all of the. I remember looking back on my journal from that trip. There were so many um, just mistakes that turned into great experiences. <laughs> What's one of the mistakes that you remember? Uh, well... One event that stands out and probably just sums up the whole trip for me. Remember, we tried to save money by not getting a hotel or a hostel, but we tried to sleep free on an empty train car that was parked 
oh, in yeah. a train that yard. That was in Yugoslavia, wasn't it? Yes. And this train looked like it hadn't moved for decades. It was just <laughs> sitting there. I thought moss was growing on its wheels. So we, both you and I looked at each other like, we just struck it rich. You know, hey, we could go into there, slip into there. Nobody's mm-hmm. looking. Nobody cares. Pull out all the chairs. That was when the chairs that faced each other pulled out and made a big bed. So you had a double bed. <laughs> we, we rolled out our sleeping bag. We didn't even bother with our tube tent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, we were kings. We were laying there. It felt so good for about like three hours. And what, what made it feel even better, it was absolutely free. It was absolutely free. And we were so smart. But then in the middle of the night, wham, <laughs> the train jerks to a start. And we jerk wide awake, and we're going, oh, Both of us are looking out the window like, a, what the heck? And we didn't know where we're going. Yugoslavia was scary enough. Suddenly, we're hurtling through the night on a train that we don't have a ticket for, and we didn't know where the heck we were going. And I remember we felt like a couple of rudely awakened um, butterflies coming out of their cocoons, and we dragged all of our sleeping bags with us, standing at the door, wondering, should we jump out at this suburban station, or should we stay in the train and go to Bucharest or something? <laughs> so we decided to leap, and we landed in this little, dark, dingy suburban station outside of Belgrade. Yep. And we, then a man came over with a... We leaped out of the moving train, didn't we? Yes. And we landed just splat right on the we, concrete We, we could platform. have hit a pillar and bounced back onto the, uh, the train, and then there'd be yeah. no more trips. <laughs> but then I remember this. We kind of were checked everything. My main concern was, did we get all of our stuff off the train with us? And then were we in one piece? And this man walks over with a lantern. Actually, it was like a lantern. <laughs> yeah. And he'd say, who are these two crackpots? And then he, he took us in like a, a loving scoutmaster. He gave us a little place to sleep, and it we was, were on our way. It, it seemed like the perfect metaphor of a European with a lantern pointing <laughs> us the way to our future. Two kids opening up to the rest of the world. It was a bit of a rude awakening, but it was probably a healthy one for a couple of young kids from the suburbs. I'm sure thankful for that trip. That was the best trip ever, Gene. And what's great in my mind is that those kind of wide-eyed wonderland adventures that we had when we were 18 years old so many decades ago, kids are having them today, too. It's still possible, and that's the magic of travel. Go for it, guys. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. Special thanks to Robert Frazier at Feature Story News in Washington for studio help this week. You can find out more about our guests, search the show archives, and listen again anytime you like. Look on our website, ricksteves.com radio. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.